Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 is where we are this morning. We're continuing our trek through the Sermon on the Mount. I missed you guys. We missed you last week. Um, we were, Jennifer and one of our children and I were out of town watching a football game down in Florida. Had a good time. We missed you. It's good to be back. Will did a fantastic job doing a message on Matthew 4 and how uh, the humanity of Jesus identifies with us and helps us fight temptation. So if you missed that last week, you can find, a, I think, a CD maybe out on the uh, desk out front in front of the middle column, or you can find it online. I'd love for you to listen to that. We're back into the Sermon on the Mount this morning as we're just working our way through this, this long sermon of Jesus, which is one of the most well-known, uh, misapplied, least understood chapters or group of chapters in the Bible. And so we're just trekking through it this fall um, until we get done with Matthew chapter 7. So today we find ourselves is starting in verse 13. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the text, pray, and then we're going to work our way through it. But before I read, let me, let me tell you why I think you should listen today, why I think this text is super important for us as a local church. I think this text is getting to the very heart of why God made us, why God saved us, and why God calls us together as a local church. So this is a, a text where Jesus um, utters a phrase that is just very common in church culture, that we should be salt and light. But sometimes when things become so familiar, they become sort of distant from us. And I want us to think deeply today and take these words from Jesus to heart and for us to consider the purposes of God, that why he would even create us, why he would allow us to fall, why he would save us from that fall, and then why he would leave us on this earth for the remaining years of our life, even after he redeems us by the glorious work of his son. This text is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a, a, a local church. So let me read, and then we'll pray and work our way back through this text. And we're going to have some some thoughts up on the screen. We're going to look, I think, at three foundational truths, and then we're going to look at some traits of a, of a group of people, a local church that takes this text seriously. So Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16, Jesus says these words, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right, I think the big point of this text is that Jesus has redeemed a people for his glory so that then they might be collectively, as a community, a collective display of his beauty and supremacy to an onlooking world so that through those people, 
through their lives, through the way they live out the commands of Scripture, that they might be used by God to be the means by which he brings other people to delight and trust and put their hope in him. I think that's the big, the big point. And we're going to look at that and unpack it. And we see it, Jesus makes those, that big point by using two metaphors, salt and light. So we're going to unpack that. Before we do that, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Well, Father, we, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ that we can come as your people and open your Bible, open your word, which is true and inspired by you, that we can come in the midst of uh, just the fog of our lives. Lord, there are people in this room who are tired and beat down and anxious. There are people in this room who are too comfortable and complacent. There are people in this room who uh, are, are, are self-deceived and not truly aware of where they stand with a holy God. Lord, we come to you from all over the map, different cultures, different backgrounds, different situations. But we all have this one thing in common, whether we are already believers in Jesus or not yet. For all of us, our deepest need is to hear from you and to see and savor the beauty of our God. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us do that. And I pray even this morning as we look at this text that you would help us as a local church become just a better witnessing community for the glory of God. And I pray that you'd do this for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, three foundational truths that I think are embedded in this text. The first two are really, really come before this truth, before this text, and the truth of this text really rests upon the first two of these truths. And then the third truth that we're going to look at very briefly before we work our way back through the, the text is really, I think, the the big idea of this text. So three foundational truths very quickly before we work our way back through this, this text that we just have to understand before we can even rightly uh, start to pull apart and unpack this text. The first is, is that God makes his people right with him through the work of his son. And that's this biblical word called justification. Okay, you got to understand this. If you're a Christian, this is super important for you to grab a hold of. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand this because I think this will hold out great hope for you as you, as you see the reality of the gospel, hopefully today, is that the biggest issue in the world, the biggest issue for every person in this room is that God is holy. He created us. We fell. We're not holy. Our unholiness, our rebellion makes us deserve God's just and right wrath. So we have a problem. That's the fundamental issue of Scripture. We have a problem. God, our Creator, is holy. We, His creation, are fallen. And something needs to be done about this unless we remain in that state. And the good news of the Gospel is is that God makes His people right with Him through the work of His Son, Jesus, on the cross. Through not only His work on the cross, but through His sinless life, through His complete obedience, through His substitutionary death where Jesus lays down His perfect life as fully God and fully man on the cross, bears the wrath of God in our stead for us, extinguishes it, and He has enough 
holiness to extinguish the wrath of God because Jesus is not just merely a perfect man. He is, as Wayne prayed for us this morning when he read from John 1, he is the eternal, pre-existent, second person of the Trinity. He is holy, infinitely holy, just like the Father. So Jesus is the perfect God-man who substitutes himself on the cross for us, and his sacrifice is enough. Whereas none of our sacrifices, none of our good works, none of our efforts would be enough to make us right or to bridge the gap between us and God, Jesus is enough. He's sufficient. And he lays down his life on the cross, absorbs God's wrath, and then rises in victory over sin, the grave and all of its consequences and now because he's alive because he's the king because he's defeated death because he's defeated the grave he now commands and is able to offer life to all who will turn and trust in him and that is in fact the ability to even do that is in itself a gift so we are dead in our sins and God gives life to those whom he saves. He gives them a new heart so that they can see and believe and trust in Jesus and when they breathe out that first breath of faith, they are, all of us who are trusting in Christ, are justified. That's a theological term meaning we are now back in right standing with God. Friends, that happens in an instant. And it doesn't happen because there's anything good in us. It happens because of something outside of us, and that is the mere and pure and undiluted grace of God. That's the beginning of the gospel. God makes his people right with him through his son Jesus. That's in an instant. It's justification. That leads us to the second foundational truth before we can even unpack rightly what Jesus is telling his people in this text is that then after justifying them, after making them alive, then God begins this process of sanctification. So then God transforms his people to be more and more progressively over time for the rest of their lives here on this earth like Jesus. So get this, all right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago maybe a month or so ago when we ended up Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, is that we need to understand the difference between this one-time moment of justification, an instant that God does something to us from the outside, boom, he takes a dead heart, he makes it alive so that that dead heart, which was blind before, can now see Jesus, believe in Jesus, receive all the benefits of what Jesus has done in his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection and is instantly, in an instant, that was repetitive, instantly, in an instant, be justified. And then God leaves us here in this life, often for many, many years and decades, to then begin this second progressive process, which is called sanctification. So God saves instantly, progressively. Did you see how seamless that was? (laughs) So God instantly saves us, and why doesn't he just zap us and take us home? Have you ever wondered that? I've, boy, in the middle of just getting beat up by my own flesh and remaining sin, I've thought that. God saves us instantly, and he leaves us here to make us progressively more and more like Jesus, 
who we have been made right with him through. That's sanctification, okay? So those are three foundational truths that then leads us to the third foundational truth, which I think is the big point of this text. This is what Jesus is saying, but we had to do those two first foundational truths before we can really rightly understand this third one. Is that, okay, God saves in an instant, that's justification. He leaves us here to grow more and more like Jesus over the rest of our lives. Why, foundational truth number three, so that God would use our sanctification, our progressive growing more and more like Christ to bring about the justification that he desires to work in others who are not yet trusting in him. And that's called evangelism. That's the task of the church, of the Christian, for the remainder of their lives. So think about this. And just take this in. This is amazing. The God who created everything out of nothing allowed it to fall so that he can redeem it has determined that the most glorious way to go about accomplishing this redemption is through the humble life and death of his eternally glorious son Jesus, that's mind-blowing, that God would work redemption through those humble means, and then not only would he work redemption, accomplish it through the humility of Jesus, but then he would apply redemption, that he would bring it about through the Holy Spirit, working slowly over the course of time, tediously, plotting with his people to make them more and more like Jesus so that through dusty, incomplete, confused, anxious, still somewhat sinful people like us and every other Christian in the world, that through us, he would use the process of our growth in Christ collectively to be the means by which he uses to bring other Others to their first time faith in him, which is justification. Friends, this is amazing that the God of all creation could have instantly just made things right, but didn't. He humbled himself and became a man, allowed his creation to kill him, and then rose again victoriously over it. And then the God who could just command everybody to submit to him doesn't, but he now uses his redeemed humanity to be the means through which he accomplishes Salvation for untold people from every tribe and tongue and nation through the centuries. So then to explain how his people should go about this, Jesus uses two metaphors, salt and light. So let's read again in verse 13. This first, this metaphor of salt. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So first let's look at this idea of what is Jesus saying here. Jesus compares the Christian to salt. What is he getting at? What what does he mean to imply? Well, salt uh, in these times, it's not so much anymore, was used really for, for the primary purpose of stopping the decay of meat. So we don't, we have these things called refrigerators now, right? And um, there, in fact, in my house, 
Um, even if we didn't have a refrigerator, meat would not be in any danger of decaying. Because I have four children, three of them are boys, one of them is a girl who eats an appropriate amount of food. The other three are like a horde of locusts who, I mean, anytime I got anything that's left over that's good, that whatever, it is gone, right? So we actually don't, we would need salt in our house even if we didn't have a refrigerator. But salt is meant to prevent decay and to make things stop, they're kind of, you know, just going bad. Surely, what, what Jesus is saying here is that this is the effect that Christians should have in the culture, on the world. So Im- implicit in this metaphor or this analogy of Christians being salt is that, is that if we're the preserving agent or intended by Jesus to be the preserving agent, then that implies that the world is decaying. So although I love Louis Armstrong, um, I think we need to say more than it is a wonderful world, right? I see stars of, whatever, Mark McGraw's down here. He knows that he's got it queued up. Yeah, I I love Louis Armstrong, but it's it's not quite a wonderful world, is it? This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and the sins with which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says that we were, we were following the course of, of this world, the decaying course of this world. So the world is a dark and decaying place. And God saves a great multitude of people out of that to be a preserving agent to stop that through these people they would stop the decay of the world. So just one application here is that, friends, if you are not yet a Christian, And I'm sure in a crowd this size, there are some in this room that are not yet trusting in Christ. Look, your primary problem is not that you need tips on how to do better. Your primary problem is that you are dead. You're decaying. And you need to be brought back to life. And God has even intended, this is the great mercy and kindness of God, He has even intended to use still imperfect people whom he has previously redeemed to be a kind of picture of what it looks like to trust in him. And so you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are, you know, they're not perfect representations of what it means to be a Christian, but they are salt that God has put next to you, has has sovereignly brought into your life to be a preserving means to stop the process of decay, get your attention so that you might see Jesus and trust in Him. Jesus' point here clearly, I think, is that Christians through their lives are to have a, a purifying effect in a decaying world. So some implications of this before we move on to looking at, at his second metaphor of light. Christians are to be distinct from this world. I mean, if this is so, 
when we try and be as much like the world so that we can draw them to Jesus, I think we fundamentally misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. And I think we see this, and I want to be very gracious here, but I think in the 70s and 80s and even into the early 90s in the church in America, you saw kind of a, uh, what has been referred to as kind of the seeker-sensitive movement. And although I, I have great sympathy for what I think the impulse of, of many of those churches and leaders was a, a, a good and earnest desire to uh, reach out to people that were lost, I think it fundamentally can potentially blur the lines. It's kind of like, well, let's get as close to, let's look as much like the world as we can in hopes that it might be attractive to them. And then they will sort of see the benefits of following Jesus and then they will kind of make a decision based on sort of, you know, helpful tips to, to trust in him. And friends, that's not, like, that's not what it means to be a Christian. I mean, how would you feel about me if, and I've used this analogy before, if, it, if I was talking to you about, about a marriage, and I said, you know, it's really, it's really good to be married. I mean, you know, one of the great benefits of being married is that, uh, you know, we get to file our taxes jointly. That's, that's very helpful. It's very helpful. Helps me save a little bit of, bit of money at the end of the year. You know, another helpful thing is that sometimes when I have a, a, a busy day, you know, or whatever, uh, my wife, um, she, she can pick the kids up from practice. That is so helpful. I mean, it just makes my life go a little bit better. And all of you would be like, ha, ha, ha that's not going to go well when he goes home, right? As opposed to saying, man, being married is, is challenging. It's, it's all this, but thank God for this grace that God has given me in the gift of my wife because I love her. Well, in the same way, when Christians try and explain what it means to be a Christian based merely on ways that it can sort of help you live life more functionally, we... We cut off at the legs the very reason that what it means to be a Christian, don't we? Oh, well, Jesus will help you have a, a better Tuesday. Jesus will help you with your anger. Jesus will help you with this stuff. No, the greatest need, the greatest issue in being a Christian is that God has radically, decisively, miraculously regenerated us, made us alive, saved us from this lost world, and demands and offers us to come into this beautiful love relationship of worship with him. And yes, there are a thousand and one benefits to being a Christian, just as there are a thousand and one benefits to being in a marriage or any other relationship. But at its core, it is not about benefit. It is about the fact that we are distinct from this world and God has made us alive. And we need to present what it means to be a Christian in that vein. Showing them the love of Jesus isn't always rosy and feel-good and helpful. In fact, sometimes it will put you at odds with this world and will cause you, as Christians in other parts of the world are experiencing even now, to be killed for their faith. Living for Jesus in a decaying world will often be controversial and cause offense. And Jesus says that Christians are to be Salt, like salty in this world. So then the second analogy, light. Verse 14. Jesus says, You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So if the first analogy or metaphor that Jesus used was salt, which implied that the world is decaying, this second comparison, an analogy, metaphor that Jesus uses, calling Christians light, implies if we're light, then it implies that the world is a dark place. It's decaying and it is dark. And a clear implication of this is that Jesus puts his people in these dark places so that they are to be displayed, to be on a stand, as he says, and not underneath a bushel. I was thinking about this, and those of you young soldiers that are in the, um, the army, I don't know if they have these anymore. It's been, gosh, almost 15 or so more than that years since I've been in the army, but I can remember they would give you these flashlights um, when you went through CIF to get your gear, and when you're out in the, you know, an operation at night, and you're wanting to, you know, you're scrambling around in your rucksack looking for something. Um, of course, you're not just going to turn on a flashlight, you know, and just kind of advertise, hey, this is where we are. Hey, enemy, I'm over here with a flashlight, right? Kind of like, you know, kids in a Boy Scout troop, you know, banging around at night. You're supposed to be tactical and quiet. And so they give you these little, these little lenses. Uh, I'm thinking of this little red one that would kind of mute the light of the flashlight. Do they still do those? I don't know if it's been, it's coming you guys. All right, good. I'm, I'm not that old anyway. Um, and they, you put this little red lens on the end of your flashlight so that when you turn on your flashlight to rummage around in your rucksack and get that one last little cliff bar, right? Because, you know, MREs taste terrible. And as you're getting that one last little cliff bar, which kind of defeats the purpose because you can smell that peanut butter like a whole kilometer away. And the enemy, can, he can't see you, but now he can smell you. But anyway, you're rummaging in your rucksack to get that Snickers or whatever, and you have this little red light to dim the light. And what functionally happens there is the light then is meant to just serve your personal purpose rather than to illuminate. Now, that's a good thing if you're in the army and you're in a tactical environment, you don't want the bad guys to see you. But I think Christians often live this way. It's, it's like they put a dimmer on the end. We put a dimmer on the end of our flashlight, even unintentionally, and we, we mute the very purpose of why Jesus has saved us, and we mute it down into the mere personal living out of our faith. And we, we completely jettison the whole global purpose, the whole public purpose of what it means to be a Christian in community. And our faith becomes merely personal and private. Friends, there is no such thing biblically as merely personal faith. Yes, it has to start personally, but it must work itself out. I just heard a politician the other day talking about his stance on a very controversial issue that every theologian or every, every politician gets asked about, about the issue of abortion. And this particular theologian, or, sorry, theologian, this particular politician was Catholic. And he said, it's this very common defense. He says, well, I would never do it myself. It's not my belief, but I'm not going to impose my belief on everybody else. And he thought that this was sort of a generous Christian stance. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth as we live out our personal faith it has to have this public illumination that displays the beauty of Christ to an onlooking world. So Jesus says his people 
or to be the light of the world, like a city set on a hill. And that's what I want us to zero in on before we look at just a few traits of what it means to be this type of Christian and this type of church. So notice that Jesus doesn't just say that you, individual Christian, are like salt, or that you, individual Christian, are a light. He uses this analogy of we are like a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. So he, he uses this plural metaphor here. He says that we're, we're part of a community. In other words, Christians are not salt and light in isolation as individuals. God puts us in a community to be a collective display. He puts his people not just in a broad community, but he puts us together in local churches so we can be clearer and more effective collective displays of what it means to follow Jesus. God's purpose for every individual Christian is to put them in a community called a local church so that together this local church can be a local expression of this city on a hill and be a kind of witnessing community, a community that together lives out the implications of this text, lives out the implications of what it means to be a Christian, and thereby collectively together displays the surpassing worth of Christ to an onlooking world. So now we end with this. Two traits of a witnessing community, two traits of what it means to be an individual Christian in a local church that is salt and light. And these are not rocket science, but I want us to think deeply about them as as a local church. Two traits of a witnessing community. One is that we as individuals and we collectively would know and cherish the gospel. Know and cherish the gospel. And when I mean know the gospel, I mean more than just sort of being able to recite a fact like Jesus died on a cross for our sins. Certainly that's wonderfully and beautifully true. But knowing and cherishing the good news of what God has done to justify a people for himself goes beyond just being able to recite a Sunday school answer as true and as glorious and as profound as it may be It's this putting our hope in. It's this living from this truth. It's this sense that we collectively are confident that that truth is the way that God saves people. It's an unashamed embracing of this truth. It's it's a realizing that we are strange and peculiar people, that we are foreigners on this earth. We are like aliens, and we were dead, and now God has made us alive, and we are not trying to water that down, but we are okay with the fact that the world, much of it will hate this news, but we know it. We put our hope in it. It's a miracle that we even understand it and we cherish it and we live from it. And this makes us distinct from the world. To to know this is to put all of our hope in what God has done in Christ. And we collectively, as a church, know and cherish and revere and exalt and uphold the glorious news of what God has done in Christ. Will did a wonderful job last week. I was listening to it this week throughout the week as I, this week, as on his message on Matthew 4 when he delved into Hebrews and how Jesus in his humanity 
resisted sin for us, even understanding what Jesus has done for us. We, we, we live out of that and we fight sin and we cherish the good news of the gospel and we collectively become a community that has this strange mixture of boldness because we believe that God saves through this word, but humility to cherish the gospel is to also be humble because we realize that God saves all manner of wicked people just like we were. And we're bold in this and we cherish it. And then we become a community that is gathered together not because we're common, we have something in common with each other, like maybe a football team or a neighborhood that we live in, but we're a group of people that are gathered together because of the gospel. That's why we're here. So we know it and we cherish it. And then the second trait of a witnessing community is that we would take the one another's of scripture seriously the bible after in the new testament after it speaks about what god has done for us in christ on the cross speaks about then all of these implications of what it, then it means to be a christian what it means to be salt and what it means to be light and what are the implications of living out and fighting sin and becoming more like jesus and there's all of these one another phrases in the New Testament that says this is how you should live with one another. This is how you should bear with one another. This is how you should forgive one another and exhort one another and, and care for one another and lay down your life for one another and encourage one another and exhort one another. And, 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 and all of these one another phrases that then God puts us in community with a bunch of other messy, gritty hard to be around Christians, right? I can remember um, when I was a little kid, uh, my brother wouldn't let me be around him uh, when I ate because he didn't like the noises I made when I chewed. <laughs> so, like, when my parents were around, he would banish me to another room. I don't like the way you sound when you chew. And then um, we went to this little elementary school down the street, and I would ride on his handlebars. He, that's how that was our transportation to school. He would ride a bike, and I'd ride on the handlebars. Um, and he started to complain about the scent of the shampoo that I had because the scent of my hair, <laughs> this was back in the 70s, back when I had like a lot of hair, a little part down the middle, kind of the Hardy Boys look, you know what I'm talking about? Hardy Boys, man, I was rocking it out, feathered back, 70s. And he didn't like the scent of my shampoo, so he, and this is all without my parents' knowledge, by the way, forced me to, like, encourage my mom to get another type of shampoo that was scent approved by him. I, mean, I, was just, I just did a bunch of little things that drove him crazy. I remember he didn't let me chew juicy fruit gum because he didn't like the smell of juicy fruit gum. And we could go on and on and on. It's not edifying and it starts to sort of jack me up because it gives me like a nervous twitch when I think about all the ways my brother. Friends, when, sometimes when you put a group of people together that are still very much in process, we start to drive each other crazy. <laughs> it's personal for somebody over here, I see, right? <laughs> and I want you to see that God intends to put a bunch of people who chew loud, 
who smell bad and who drive each other crazy, part of his plan is to put them together so that they would deal with those issues in a gracious, forbearing, patient, enduring sort of way so that it becomes a kind of aroma to an onlooking world of this is how the redeemed community loves one another in Christ. Do you see that? But what, like, what do Christians do in the Deep South where we have churches on every street corner? Like we get mad about something. Somebody offended us. We don't like the music. I got tired of the preacher. And so we run on to the next church. And we go from place to place to place, complaining about the previous place, looking for all the things that we will like better in the new place, all the while completely cutting ourselves off from any ability to actually be salt and light, even by the way we live together with other annoying people. And then we don't even consider the fact that maybe we got some issues that are making other people totally crazy. Have you ever thought about that? And we classify being salt and light as merely like one-on-one evangelism, right? Where we got to go, you know, hang out at the mall and pass out tracts or preach on a street corner or witness or whatever, which are wonderful things to do. But in this context, what I think Jesus has primarily in mind is the life together of the witnessing community bearing with one another in patience and endurance and forbearance so that together they become a kind of display of what it means to trust in Christ and to be his people. I see so many examples of this in this church. Um, I do. I just see people forbearing with one another, enduring one another. You know what's a a particular delight is that um, I have been the only pastor of this church. We started this church ten and a half years ago. And um, in ten and a half years of being the pastor of this little church that started as a very small group of people, I have really never had anybody come to me complaining about another member in this church. That's just a kind and sweet grace of God. And I, I, I mean, it just doesn't happen. I, I don't have people kind of rolling their eyes about people that maybe are, are just hard to be around or whatever. It just doesn't happen. This is a kind and peculiar grace. I can think of people in my mind right now who saddle up next to people who are challenging or difficult or, or, or are going through a difficult time and just lay down their lives and put their heart on a platter and just offer it to those people and give it to them. And I see, I see a, I'm thinking of a couple that, that has a particular burden for young married couples. And they're just, they're just constantly bringing these people around them. And, and these people have challenges and issues like, like all of us do. And, and they just seem to be drawn to hurting people that can be difficult to love. And, and, and I want us to see that, that the way even just regular, ordinary Christians go about drawing themselves close to others in the body who are difficult to love becomes this, just this beautiful, irresistible aroma that God uses 
to bring unbelievers because they just smell this, this kind of delight in this place. And they say, that's a place where I know that I can be made whole. I think about how this couple just continues to offer themselves over and over and over and over again. I think about another couple, a few, a few families that just continually are opening up their homes to, to uh, foreign military officers, to, to international students. I can think about guys in the military. I, I was speaking to a guy who's in the uh, third, or he's actually in the 75th Ranger Regiment, and um, he, he is, um, hangs out with another fellow believer who's also a member of this church, and he was talking about what an encouragement this other believer was to him, even as he lives out his faith in this very challenging very dark place. Now, thank God for the army. Thank God for these units like the rangers who do dangerous, very difficult things. But friends, when we tell a young man to join the army and we make him do the things as a country that we ask him to do, man, that can lead guys, if they don't know the Lord, into some dark places, right? An intensity in those environments that is often very contrary to God. And it's such an encouragement to hear a younger Christian say about an older Christian who are together in that unit that, hey, it is so encouraging that we together collectively encourage one another in this environment. We bear with each other in our failings. And together, we're like a little mini expression of the body of Christ to an onlooking world. And brothers and sisters, who knows what God is doing in the hearts of people who are a thousand miles away from God as they see these two guys in those dark environments just hold on to Christ. That's what it means to be salt and light, to be a community that takes the one another's of Scripture, the one another's of the Bible seriously. So a few, a few points of application and then we'll end. To the non-Christian, do you, res- do you realize that your greatest need is not to be helped but to be brought back to life. You are in a world that is dark and decaying, and your greatest need is to be made right with a holy God. And God in his kindness has maybe brought you to this church or next to a person that's invited you or has put you in a community of people so that through their imperfect, rugged sanctification, God is showing you kindness right now. And he's showing you kindness by bringing salt and light close to you. Not perfect examples of what it means to be a Christian, but salt and light close to you so that you will see that you you can't be made right with God by trying to do better. You can only be made right with God through the miraculous work of his son on the cross to die for you, to rise again. And your only hope is to put all of your trust in him. God is being kind to you right now. Are you a Christian in this church? Are you maybe in an environment or a place of work or a situation that is less than optimal? Could it be that God has you there for a purpose? Could it be that you are like every other Christian that has ever lived, that lives in a dark and decaying world? So why should we expect perfect situations at work when we live in a world that is dark and decaying? What if every foreign missionary made a decision about whether or not to stay in the field like we do about staying in jobs? And have you realized that maybe God, just as much as he has somebody on the other side of the world to preach the gospel, has you as a Christian of salt and light in an environment for the very same, no less important purpose? 
to be a Christian around unbelievers so that through your justification, through the living out of your sanctification, God would bring others to faith in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't mean that there aren't times when we should leave a job for a particular reason or this or that, but I'm saying that we just bounce around not realizing that God has saved us to do more than just put the dim little red light around our flashlight so we can rummage around in our rucksack and live out our personal life, but he's put us in the midst of a dark and decaying world to display the glorious light of Christ in dead, decaying, uncomfortable places. Maybe you are a, uh, an anxious Christian and you're feeling inadequate in your ability to be used by God as salt and light. Could it be that you're making what it means to be a Christian on mission, to be salt and light, that you are wrongly interpreting that to be solely an individual thing? Maybe you're not super gifted at one-on-one evangelism. Sure, you should strive to get better at it. But maybe you need to zero in on that phrase that we're the salt and light of the world. We are a city. And you need to get your eyes off of yourself and your self-perceived inadequacy and consider taking the one another's of Scripture more seriously and to see how you can... Get your head up and put it on a swivel so that you can look out for somebody else in this room who needs encouragement, some other Christian that you can serve, some other person that may be a little bit hard to love or a little bit awkward or a little bit tough to break through their shell, and you can care for that fellow believer so that collectively together you are helping to make this city, this little tiny little city called Crosspoint, together with all of the other cities, all the other churches around the world, shine just a little bit more brightly. Wherever you are, if you are trusting in Christ, God has made us collectively together salt and light so that through our living out of those truths, he might draw others. Through our sanctification, he might justify a great multitude of people through us. What a great privilege that is, friends, to be salt and light together as a local church. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for the ways I see this happening in this church week after week, year after year. Certainly we are by no means a perfect expression of this. And I pray that, Lord, you would be so kind as to make us as a local church a, a more effective display of what it means to trust in Christ that you would make us salty people. People that you use to be distinct from the world so that the world would notice and that those who you intend to save from all eternity past would be awakened to the glorious reality of what it means to be right through your son's work on the cross. Lord, would you make us a salty church, a church that's useful? Or would you make us a, a church that's full of light? 
a church that is not just content with holding services week after week and playing songs we're comfortable with and just sort of growing personally and theologically. Lord, you have very harsh things to say to your people in the Old Testament who just got fat on, spiritually fat on your goodness. You don't desire us to just be retainers of truth, but to be conduits of your grace and truth to an onlooking world. So Lord, I'm sure this has been the case. I know it's the case in my life. At times when we've become complacent or satisfied with just being a a local church that seems to kind of be doing okay, Lord, would you push on that tendency that we have to just be static? And would you burden our hearts for our neighbors and the nations? And would you not make us think that then that means we have to go out and be John Wayne in evangelism, but that you together, the way that we live together as a local church and the way that you move us to display the glorious light of Christ, that together we become a a display of Christ. And God, in your kind and sovereign grace, you use that in your providence to be the means to bring to life all those from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, people in this city. You use our dusty, imperfect sanctification to be the means to bring about your light in those whom you are saving. God, would you do that, I pray. Would you do that to a great degree? And Lord, as we think about this little city on the hill, Crosspoint, we pray for all of the other churches in our city that are trusting in Christ, that are preaching the gospel. Lord, would you bless them? Lord, would you, would you, would you blow a fresh wind and burden through those churches? And would you, would you draw unbelievers to them and us? And Lord, would you make churches here healthy? And would you make Christians not just satisfied and grumpy and complacent and inward thinking, but would you push on us so that we... We collectively, as a body of Christ in Columbus, would be salt and light, and we would push on ourselves, and we'd give our stuff away, and we wouldn't spend our money on ourselves and trinkets and leisure, and we would just dumb ourselves to death and recreation. But, God, we would, we would be thinking about ways that you want to make us more salty and more brighter displays of the glory of Christ in this broken, dead, decaying, dark world. Lord, would you put that burden on us and would we walk in it joyfully and gladly and humbly this week. And God, for any person in this room that by your providential sovereign grace that you have determined that they would be here today and that they have not yet trusted in Christ, would you finally, for the first time, take their eyes off of themselves and let them see by your grace that their rightness with you will never be accomplished by them trying to do better. There's nothing inside of them that can commend them to you, but they must trust in something outside of them, which is Christ, what he has done, your son, crucified, crushed, victoriously risen from the grave. Their only hope is in him. Lord, would you do that even now? Would you... Give them eyes to see that good news so that their justification then would begin this process of sanctification where you use that person to 
make others alive. Lord, do that. Put them on mission. Open their eyes. Save them. Justify them. And use them for your glory. Lord, would you do this? Fathers, we respond now through song, through prayer, through those of us that are Christians coming forward to receive communion at your table. Lord, would you would you make us a salty, bright light for the glorious grace of Christ in our city and abroad. In Jesus' name, amen.